One of the biggest stories of 2019 was undoubtedly the OPCW's serious scandal, a cover-up inside the world's top chemical weapons watchdog that was used to justify U.S.-led military strikes on Syria. Leaked documents and testimony show there were serious doubts inside the OPCW about the allegation that the Syrian government committed a chemical weapons attack in the city of Douma in April 2018. Inspectors who were on the ground in Douma complained that their findings were distorted and excluded. According to one OPCW whistleblower who spoke to the British journalist Jonathan Steele, this censorship was done under direct U.S. government pressure. According to a new batch of documents released by WikiLeaks, a top OPCW official ordered the removal of a critical document from the organization's secure registry. The document was a detailed engineering study that cast major doubt on the allegation that the Syrian government dropped gas cylinders on Douma. Another leaked document shows the OPCW consulted with toxicologists to determine whether symptoms observed in victims at the scene were consistent with exposure to chlorine. According to minutes of that meeting, quote, the experts were conclusive in their statements that there was no correlation between symptoms and chlorine exposure, unquote. But these key findings, and many others, were kept from the public when the OPCW released its final report. Ignoring its own data and experts, the OPCW concluded that there were, quote, reasonable grounds that the use of a toxic chemical as a weapon took place. This toxic chemical contained reactive chlorine, unquote. But even now, as the suppressed findings come out via Brave Whistleblowers and WikiLeaks, they are still being kept from the public. That is because the Western media, including top progressive adversarial outlets, have ignored or whitewashed the story. And that media self-censorship has become a scandal in itself. Well, earlier I spoke to Ted Postel, award-winning professor of science, technology, and national security policy at MIT. Welcome, Professor Postel. Back to pushback. Uh, we've discussed this scandal many times now. Uh, there have now been multiple sets of leaks released by WikiLeaks. As you read over them, what is your overall assessment of what took place inside the OPCW? Well, I think uh, that uh, some people will try to, may try to uh, argue that there was somehow a difference of opinion among experts. Uh, at least that's some of the rhetoric I've heard. And uh, I think when you look at the original report, that is to say the report that was intent was written by the professional staff and intended for the UN Security Council, and then you look at the report that was instead sent to the UN Security Council, I would say there is no doubt that the uh, second report, the report sent to the Security Council, was not an accident, it was, uh, it was intentional. And the reason I uh, have reached that conclusion is that the report that is, was sent to the Security Council not only comes to the opposite conclusions, which some people might argue is just because of differences among experts, but what is in this report that was sent to the Security Council are diagrams and figures that have nothing to do with the findings that are in that altered report. And if you look at the diagrams and figures in this uh, altered report, not only do they have nothing to do with, um, with the findings, they are actually in some cases contradict the findings. So 
I can only guess uh, I'm speaking as a person who has, um, you know, a high level of uh, technical skills who reads this document. But it appears to me that uh, this was designed to intimidate uh, non-specialists, which are who are basically most of the people who read uh, this document. Most most people are they're not they're not stupid or uneducated, but they're not specialists. And so they see these graphs and figures and they just assume that these graphs and figures actually mean something. But in fact, they're meaningless. They, 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 they're just there to divert attention from the fact that the report uh, is inconsistent with its, with its own claims. And what is amazing now is reading over the documents from WikiLeaks that have been released, provided to them by people inside the OPCW, is the outrage that these experts are showing uh, in, in uh, objecting to their superiors and protesting the fact that all of their findings are being kept out of the final report and that the process itself is not involving the people who are actually on the ground in Duma. Well, I think it's worse than that. It's excluding them and uh, it's not just not involving them. It's bringing in people, whoever they are, we don't know who they are, who are uh, committed to providing a, a false representation of what was found. They obviously have other people involved. We know that from, from the memos. And these people have uh, no commitment to the truth. And um, it's obvious, and I think this is a good sign, that the uh, staff people um, at the OPCW, the regular staff, the real people who, are do, the, who do the work on the ground, are committed to getting the truth out. So that's that's a good sign. The problem is, if the leadership of the uh, of the UN, particularly, I think the Secretary General has to be called to task on this. If the Secretary General uh, does not step in on this and have uh, have an independent review, uh, I think that the weight of the um, threats and and literally probably removing people and firing them. Uh, could gut the OPCW for a very long time, po possibly forever. Uh, we saw this um, during the um, lead up uh, to the Gulf War of, uh, of 2003, where um, John Bolton, the then um, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, literally um, ran Jose Bustani out of the job of being director general of, of the OPCW. Bustani uh, was a very distinguished and accomplished uh, diplomat. And, and people don't always appreciate that diplomats are superb managers when they're good. I mean, it's not an accident that uh, Bustani was on a short list for a Nobel Peace Prize uh, because of his work setting up uh, the, the OPCW. He, he did a brilliant job. He got very good people. It's obvious that he had got very good people just from what we're seeing now. And, um, and now there's uh, an attempt on the part, I think, of the U.S. government, the British government, and the French government to destroy the professional integrity of the OPCW. This is extremely serious. Well, and we have some evidence of that because, as I mentioned earlier, Jonathan Steele, the veteran British journalist, former chief uh, foreign correspondent for The Guardian, he spoke to one of the whistleblowers, I believe the whistleblower who was not Ian Henderson, the author of that uh, leaked engineering report, somebody else who I, he, he identifies as Alex, 
and Alex, the pseudonym for the whistleblower, says that three U.S. officials showed up at the OPCW as all this internal debate was happening, as all of these experts were objecting to the exclusion of their findings on the ground in Duma. And Alex relays that three U.S. officials uh, uh, came in and told them that basically, no, the findings that Bashar al-Assad's government committed this chemical weapons attack, and this has to be the OPCW's conclusion. Well, the only reason that Americans could be at this thing would be if they chose to provide intelligence in support of their claim. Otherwise, they should have been bounced on their head out of the meeting because it's the OPCW staff, assuming they're competent, and it appears like they are very competent, who have to debate the issues and understand the technical detail. The Americans represent the American government, not the UN as an independent source of, of uh of uh, judgments that are related to international law. The UN is responsible for maintaining its independence as a source for judging whether international law was violated. And in fact, the ambassador, Ambassador Arias, in my judgment, should be removed from the position he's in. The fact that he allowed this to occur, and in fact, I think it's been more than allow it to occur, it looks like he has been carrying water for the Americans, uh, Brits, and the French on this. And he should, he should be bounced out of the UN as far as I can see. And it's striking, you know, you mentioned earlier Jose Bustani, the first director general, general of the OPCW. He is among those uh, who have, uh, and yourself included, who are calling for the OPCW to hear from these experts, the ones that they, they ignored. But Jose Bustani's call so far uh, has not been heeded. I, I want to go back to the, to the uh, Henderson. But, uh, sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, but I... I, I want to underscore again, the Secretary General of the UN is responsible for this. People have to hold the Secretary General to account. If the Secretary General is not up to this, then they probably should find another Secretary General at the UN. Well, the problem is there's a pattern of when, 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 a, when, a, when UN officials are not up to the task of following U.S. orders, they, like Jose Bustani uh, and many others, get bounced. Yeah. But let's go back to the, the first document that we saw that raised internal questions, which is the engineering report from Ian Henderson. I'm going to ask you to give us, Professor Postal, a condensed version of what Henderson found, because the technical stuff is difficult for those of us who are not uh, educated in science and physics to follow. So what was the main import of Henderson's findings, findings that, of course, were completely excluded from what the OPCW put out publicly? Well, uh, to be a very to make a very simple summary and then elaborate shortly, uh, he found that the two sites called location two and location four, there were two sites that where, where uh, chlorine cylinders were found, where allegedly there was a chlorine release, and that's location two and and four. At location two, um, he found that uh, there was a chlorine cylinder that was made to look like it was stuck through the roof of, uh, of a building uh, so that it, it had injected its uh, chlorine gas into the building uh, at the, from, the t from the rooftop. Um, he found that the hole in the roof had been produced by an explosion, probably from a mortar shell or, a, a, or an explosively armed artillery rocket. Now, the reason 
this was very clear. I want to underscore, underscore this is very clear. The, um, the rebar, the, the uh, concrete um, roof has uh, strips, uh, has rods of metal running through it to strengthen it. If you look at the, um, at the hole from inside the building, because there, there are photographs of, from inside and outside the building, you can see that the rebar, the metal um, uh, rods, are blown outward, sort of like um, the petals of, of a flower that was pointing through from, from the top of, of, the, uh, of the building. That is only an effect of a high explosive uh, uh, you know, event. And the, the high explosive event produces such intense high pressure gases that it literally would blow the rebar out into this splayed out pattern. On top of that, he points out that the size of the hole associated with the uh, cylinder is about the diameter of the hole is almost twice the diameter of the cylinder. Uh, when a cylinder hits a brittle concrete surface, it makes a hole that's roughly the same in diameter as the as as the um, uh, as the cylinder itself. It's sort of like think of it as taking a nail and punching it through uh, the surface. The hole should not be twice the diameter of the nail. There'll be some what are called spallation at the front and back, you know, the top and the bottom of the hole. But the hole itself will be the same diameter as the cylinder itself. It shouldn't be more than or almost twice, twice the diameter. So that's another uh, clear indicator. A third clear indicator is that when the cylinder uh, is supposed to be hitting, it didn't hit the roof, but supposedly be hitting the roof and, um, and penetrating through the roof, the rebar, these rods of metal, is very, very strong. So when the cylinder is penetrating through the concrete and it encounters a piece of rebar, the rebar will cause a crease in the, uh, in the cylinder. There are no creases in the front of this cylinder, you know, which would have been caused by the rebar. So um, none of these things fit what would be absolutely expected um, if, if this, in fact, was caused, if this hole was caused by the impact of the cylinder. In addition... The cylinder should have fallen through the roof if you look at its disposition because if it blew all the rebar out, momentum and gravity would have caused it to fall through into the room below, and it didn't. Now, if you look at the report, the, 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 false, the falsified report, they actually, the, the OPCW um, 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 fraudulent... Uh, the writers, the writers who participated in the fraud, put a simulation, uh, a, a, a computer simulation, of a um, of a cylinder passing through the roof. They actually have it there with diagrams, and and of course, what the simulation shows when you look at the simulation carefully, it shows that the size of the hole in the roof is equal. The diameter of the hole is equal to that of the cylinder. So, so the information that they put in the report to to produce a false impression to a non-specialist that there was actually something behind their finding contradicts what they show in their own photographs. So it's sort of amazing. So we don't just have censorship here, we have outright fraud. 
I think it's outright fraud. There's no question about it. This is not an accident. This is this was this was a real clumsy but serious attempt to uh, to create a product that looked like it was real. And this is and this brings us to one of the latest uh, document releases from WikiLeaks, where there's an internal email from Sebastian Braha, who is uh, chief of cabinet at the OPCW, a top-ranking official there, and he orders internally that Ian Henderson's engineering report, the one that revealed all this, that revealed the findings that Professor Postal just laid out, uh, Braha orders staffers to remove Henderson's report from the uh, internal server. He, he says this, quote, please get this document out of the documents registry archive and please remove all traces, if any, of its delivery, storage, whatever, in the documents registry archive. So an act there of direct internal censorship. Let me ask you, Professor Postal, about the media censorship here, because all this stuff has come out. Generally, when WikiLeaks releases internal documents from something, whether it's the Iraq war files or whether it's the DNC emails, it gets a lot of media attention. On this issue, there's been virtual media silence. So let me ask you, you've written for the New York Times for before. Uh, your studies have been cited before by the New York Times, including on the issue of chemical weapons allegations in, in Syria. Has the New York Times contacted you at all uh, for any comment uh, on this? No, story? no, no. The, the New York Times is, uh, as far as I know, is dead on this issue. I had uh, quite a while back, uh, maybe several months back, uh, I attempted to uh, uh, to talk with. Um, I'm blocking his name now. Uh, uh, a reporter who covered, uh, who had a front page story that was wronged, uh, Chivers. Uh, CJ Chivers, yeah. Yeah, CJ Chivers. And he published a front page story that was absolutely wrong. Uh, he um, uh, he was correct. He, he was corrected. He had, he, and then he wrote uh, a corrected story that was hard to understand. That it was really a correction. It was buried on page eight in a corner. Of a, of a newspaper a few days later. Uh, he quoted uh, the same people who had given him the wrong story as if they had something reliable to say. Uh, I had recontacted him. Uh, he, he, it was just a, rem a I'm, I'm sorry to say it this bluntly, but it was a display of cowardice like I haven't seen for a long time. He was just, he just had nothing to say in his defense. Hmm. Well, yeah, I want to, um, uh, also point out that this is not just the corporate media who, you know, there's a history there of the corporate media silencing stories that undermine establishment narratives. But in this case, I've been really disappointed to see that this also extends to adversarial progressive media as well. And I want to uh, ask you about two examples. One is The Intercept. Uh, they published a number of stories that advanced the narrative that Assad was guilty of this attack. You were interviewed for a story that offered sort of a, that took sort of a neutral stance on it. It was, it was sort of back and forth. It was back in February 2019. Um, since these revelations have come out, nothing in the, in the Intercept at all. Have, have they contacted you at all for an interview about no, this? No, 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 okay. not at all. Democracy Now!, which is a, a, a very prominent progressive show. The reason I had your phone number to be able to interview you here at the Gray Zone is because I used to work there for 10 years, and we used to interview you pretty often, especially when you did your work around Gaza and exposing that the Iron Dome uh, uh, missile system sold to, sold, to, sold to Israel by the U.S. was basically a fraud. Have they contacted you at all? No, no. Uh, dead silence from them. And me? Well, it, yeah. Go ahead. No. It's, uh, 
there's other interesting things developing now. Uh, this is uh, we're literally this is happening uh, as as we speak. I I received uh, a letter that was sent actually to a colleague of mine uh, from uh, the people at Princeton University. This journal uh, called Science and Global Security, and uh, it, it's not been in the news much, but we had a paper on Khan Sheikhoun that was refereed and accepted for publication that was inexplicably pulled from being published. And just to explain quickly, just to explain, Khan Sheikhoun, that was an attack in April 2017, a, chem a alleged chemical weapons attack that also prompted U.S. airstrikes on Syria. That's correct. And uh, that report uh, from the UNOPCW was as badly compromised as a report on Duma. The report on Duma is getting a lot of attention now, as it should. But this other report was absolutely as badly compromised. That is to say, it was clearly and unambiguously a fraud. And um, uh, we, uh, my colleagues and I did a very detailed, and we even did supercomputer calculations to show that uh, the claim in the, um, in the OPCW report was false. The paper was refereed and accepted by this Princeton-based journal. And then inexplicably, the people, the editors of the journal pulled the, said they weren't going to publish it. And then they had some silly uh, arguments, which uh, are really not even worth repeating because they were so obviously not true. And then uh, in this letter we just got the other day, it appears that they're saying, it appears, I want to be clear here, we don't yet know. I've just written, I'm preparing a letter to them right now uh, about to ask them. It appears that the reason this article was all of a sudden pulled after it was refereed and accepted is because the, um, uh, the publisher, uh, Francis and Taylor, uh, which is a British-based publishing firm, objected to publishing the article. Hmm. That's the way it looks. Hmm. And if that's true, the next letter we write will be to the president of Princeton University to find out if Princeton University thinks that uh, a publisher in England should have the right to determine whether a refereed article out of a Princeton-based journal uh, should be acceptable or not. Hmm. So this is a, this is a, a new wrinkle uh, in, in this whole affair. Hmm. Finally, I want to ask you about uh, the group Bellingcat. Uh, you have speculated that they may have played a role in the OPCW fraud. Uh, this is a group that receives funding from uh, Western governments uh, and is increasingly relied on in the media. And, you know, there was, I should say that the New York Times has not completely censored the OPCW story. There was one mention of it, but it's interesting. It comes at the bottom, buried inside a profile of this group Bellingcat, where it mentions the OPCW leaks kind of in passing. That's the only time I've seen it mentioned in the New York Times, in this profile of Bellingcat. And the Bellingcat story is called... Um, these reporters rely on public data rather than secret sources. And I want to read you a quote from this article because it, it's quite striking and it's especially important if, in fact, it, it emerges that Bellingcat did play a role in the OPCW fraud. And we can talk more in a second about why they might have. But uh, they, they're profiling Elliot, Hing Elliot Higgins, who was the founder of Bellingcat. 
And they have this line, quote, and it's not a joke. They say this, quote, Mr. Higgins attributed his skill not to any special knowledge of international conflicts or digital data, but to the hours he had spent playing video games, which he said gave him the idea that any mystery can be cracked, unquote. That is an actual line, Professor Postal, in the New York Times. I, the question I have um, is, if I were an editor, knowing nothing about this story who was, who, that had been given to me, typically what happens is you have the journalist writes the article and the editor reviews it, I would have said, you can't write this. This is, this is ridiculous. This, this, you'd have to be a, a totally illiterate person to believe that playing video games gives you insights into how to be a journalist. How could you be that illiterate? I mean, it's, to me, it's astonishing. It speaks as well about the editor who reviewed this thing, as well as the writer, not to mention Mr. Higgins. It's just so extraordinary to me that I, I just don't know what else to say other than what I've already said about it. Well, and the reason why it's so important is because it's not just that they're be getting profiled in this way in the New York Times, is that their, their work, quote unquote, might have been relied on by the OPCW. And there are a few clues about that. One is the fact that in Bellingcat's own documents, they talk about their, the fact that they've collaborated with the OPCW, although, although they don't specify how. And second, you've highlighted this, that in the, going back to the Ian Henderson document, the leaked engineering report, there's a reference in there to what he calls, quote, supposed experts, unquote, consulted by the OPCW. And you've taken that as a reference to Bellingcat. Well, I don't know if it's a rec re reference to Bellingcat or other supposed experts, but, uh, but uh, it could well be uh, a reference to Bellingcat. The, uh, uh, it looks to me from reading Bellingcat's materials on Khan Sheikhoun, there are a lot of the, uh, quite frankly, false arguments uh, from the Bellingcat uh, materials that are just repeated in the, uh, in the UN uh, report on Khan Sheikhoun. Let me give, just give you an example. They, uh, uh, Bellingcat claimed that they had a video uh, that showed bombs were dropped in Khan Sheikhoun on the day of the uh, attack in April of 2017. Well, you look at the bomb debris clouds, the bomb debris clouds are drifting in the opposite direction from the wind speed. That same claim is made in the, uh, in the UN report. Now, how could the UN report get it so wrong, especially when you look at something like this Henderson report which is a highly professional document. I mean, when you read that report as a professional, I'm just saying it as a person who works as a technical person who respects or doesn't the kind of work I see. I mean, I'm, I feel I'm, I'm filled with admiration for the professionalism that's displayed in the way this report is presented, um, you know, to, to, to another technical expert. It's clearly a very high-quality document. So when I look at that, I say a man like Henderson couldn't make such a stupid, you know, trivial error. If this is the quality of the people in the OPCW, the technical skills, it's very, very high. This is just the only kind of ridiculous thing that a guy like um, uh, Mr. Higgins could make. I mean, uh, those of you who are, those people who follow this can find this debate if you want to call it that, between Higgins and me 
uh, on YouTube. He couldn't answer any question. I, I don't even think he knows which way the gravity points. You know, it's it's a, it's unbelievable how little this man actually knows that's related to reality. So how, how could you call this person a master journalist? Well, I think, uh, yeah. And I think, unfortunately, the same question applies to many people, many, many actual journalists who have completely ignored the story. And on that front, I want to ask you as we wrap, I wonder if you can comment on the professional risk that Ian Henderson and his, the other whistleblowers, whoever they are, have taken in coming, for, in coming forward as they have in leaking this stuff. And what is the impact on them and their, and their work and their act here of bravery if pretty much the entire Western media, including adversarial outlets, so-called adversarial outlets, are ignoring what they've exposed? Well, I, I, uh, I have a personal uh, reaction to this as well, because uh, I was a tenured professor at MIT, and I pointed out that MIT was involved in lying to the Senate Armed Services Committee about a weapon system that couldn't work. And I was tenured. Um, they couldn't fire me, but let me tell you, it was a pretty harrowing situation. These people are not tenured. And if they're doing what they are doing, they have chosen the jobs they're in because they are dedicated public servants. This is like running a military officer out of his or her career when they have dedicated themselves to the service of their country as a military person. There's no other thing they can do that will give them the same level of personal gratification and also self-fulfillment. And these people are risking, you know, incredibly important features, you know, aspects of their lives because they would not be there if they weren't. These are very high quality professionals. They can obviously make much better salaries working in, in other organizations. They have gone to the UN because they are dedicated to service to, you know, international law and justice. And these people are in risk of losing their opportunity to provide us with that very valuable service. So I, 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 I take this very seriously and I hold the press accountable for not doing what they should to help protect these people. I think this is, this is it's, it's criminal as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, I, I have very strong feelings about this. We'll leave it there. Ted Postel, award-winning professor of science, technology, and national security policy at MIT. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, the time.